For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. We are uh, most concerned with uh, girls who late at night are walking about the streets unaccompanied. There was a real sense of fear in the Clifton area of Bristol. We're asking for the freedom to walk the streets after dark. The so-called Clifton rapist was attacking women. There have been numerous sex attacks over the past few months. Unlike many women, I try not to uh, walk out at night. They were very nasty attacks. The imagination couldn't run to what they were actually going through, really, not knowing if you were going to live or die. I think some of them didn't ever recover. Selfish man. He's a pig of a man. There was the need for us to do something rather special. We were asked if you'd like to volunteer. They've got this operation going on, doing some decoy work. It was a classic honey trap. You hoped you'd be the one that you'd catch him. I was quite naive. No stab vest, no protection whatsoever. Attention everybody, this man is on life license for murder and got previous convictions for rape. My name is Michelle Leonard and I was a WPC in Avon and Somerset in the Police Women's Unit in 1979. So I was nearly 24. We were asked if we'd like to volunteer. They've got this operation going on and it'll be working nights, doing some decoy work. That's it, really. Nothing else. There was not a lot of detail given about what it would entail. If only Michelle had known, she had no idea that she was about to join one of the most remarkable covert policing operations in British history. The scale of the operation, the type of officers involved, and how it would culminate in a moment of pure drama makes this story, her story, extraordinary. It was a cold March morning in 1979 when police were closing in on a man who'd been terrorizing these streets. Michelle faced a simple choice. Should she put her own safety first, or should she endanger her own life to protect other women in the future? First, we need to back up two years. It's the summer of 1977. The golden age of disco. Britain's on a high in the Queen's Jubilee year. It's a good time to be young. But as women leave the clubs, some venture home alone, and in the shadows, a man is watching. The man first struck in the early hours of July the 16th, 1977, off Alma Road in Bristol's Clifton district. His victim was a woman in her 20s. Just three days later, a teenage girl was assaulted as she walked home from a nightclub. These days, what this man did to his victims would be classed as rape, but not in 1970s England. It's horrific, but it's it was still only classed as assault, sexual assault. Well, you imagine, you know, you, you, imagination couldn't run to what they were actually going through, really. They were life-changing for the victims. Um, how some of them... Uh, I think some of them didn't ever recover to, to how they used to live beforehand. You threatened to kill? Yeah, don't scream or kill you, you know. The survivors described the attacker, helping police to produce these photo-fit images. But after two attacks in three days, he vanished. They couldn't say, well, it happens on a Friday night or it happens at a particular time of the month or something like that, you know, when the moon's full. You know, you, you couldn't work anything like that out. So it was rather, you know, sporadic, certainly, those attacks. It would be two months before the man struck again. His third attack was just a few hundred metres from the first two. How could detectives catch this man who just appeared in the night, subjected young women to life-changing attacks and then disappeared? They had none of the tools available to them that detectives have now. There was no CCTV, there was no phone data, there was no DNA. All they had was the basics, footprints, fingerprints, blood types and clothes fibres. 
We wanted to make sure that we captured that very vital piece of fibre, maybe, that we could link to the offender that we may or may not know at the time. It was literally just, you know, if somebody saw something, they got a, um, a printout of all the people that were out on licence for offences in um, involving violence and sexual assault. And it was absolutely um, flabbergasting to, to see where they worked. Really? Like what? Oh, gas engineers, you know, people who were on licence, you know, going, calling on people's homes. These were the days before inquiry room computers. They used complicated and cumbersome card indexes. Easy for details to get lost. Police worked as best they could with the limitations of 1970s technology. And again, the man disappeared. Then, in the November of 1977, a fourth assault. More ferocious than anything before. Police were desperate, so they tried something new. A television reconstruction to appeal for witnesses. Did anyone know who this attacker was? His fourth victim had been a 21-year-old foreign au pair who'd been walking home alone. A man who looked like this grabbed her, pulled her into this electricity substation where he assaulted her. This is a man in this clothing that we're looking for, but this is the, ident uh, the photo fit picture of the actual attacker that we're hoping the public can help us to trace. He'd shaved, but it was clearly the same man. I think the actual rape at Redland was the one that turned it because you even had the chief constable on the television. On the latest rape, he drained one woman for nearly 100 yards. Mm -hmm. Just how determined is he to, to get what he wants? Well, that's an indication that he is determined to get what he wants, in spite of the blandishments of the women to leave him alone. So he's a selfish man. He's a pig of a man. I think they were trying to get a profile then, but obviously profiling wasn't a thing to do then. It's quite old-fashioned policing, really. Well, we think he's obviously a young man between 25 and 30. I expect he's single. We suspect he may live alone. We're trying to build up a picture from what he says and how he behaves. He's obviously pretty fit. He obviously associates late at night in clubland or in licensed premises because he's always out late at night. And this attack was just around the corner from Redland Police Station, the attacker was becoming as brazen as he was brutal. We took it as a, almost an, a personal affrontage that somebody should be coming onto our patch and uh, committing these horrendous crimes on women. In my normal policing duties, if we ever saw a lady walking on their own in an unlit area, we'd stop the car and uh, we were in a marked police car and we'd say, we'll take you home. We were desperate to try and apprehend the person that was causing all this. We had the, um, the, the university, a lot of students on our patch. Now, for the first time, students were warned about the attacker. They were told to not go out after dark. Well, you really must be careful if you're walking around Clifton at night. Here's the warnings from the information office. I think if we do use all the avenues that we possibly can, student newspapers, uh, the tannoy system down here, hall, hall meetings where union councillors will go, to really impress on girls that they shouldn't walk around Clifton by themselves. There was a strong feeling, certainly amongst the, uh, the ladies who, uh, and students and, who were in that area, that not enough was being done. Uh, when I can... I can assure them that there was an awful lot going on in the background, but when you've got somebody as elusive as that, very, very difficult to, uh, to catch. Alexandra Park and Lee, and Lee Rowe, those are particularly the areas. The attacks became a national talking point. There have been several attacks over the summer period in the Clifton area. They had been, and always would be, overshadowed by the so-called Yorkshire Ripper, who was still at large. But the Clifton Rapist was now drawing campaigners to Bristol who highlighted women's vulnerabilities and how poorly the country's rape laws were enforced. Very obvious, for instance, with the rape cases recently in Clifton, you know, that the response of the police has been partly to say we shouldn't, you know, women shouldn't go out at night if there's no street lighting. But that's common sense, surely. Yes, but we want street lighting. We don't see why we should have to pay for rape all the time. The authorities have been coming down on the side of the rapist and have been giving what we call go-ahead sentences. And also the judges have been making comments which tell men that it's all right to rape. In my task force unit, and I think others, were then deployed to do high visibility policing that may have been why, for a period of time, there were no attacks. Good morning. Sophie is in the room, so I know speaking. Detectives plotted everything they knew, now under the gaze of TV cameras. 
but the man, now called the Clifton Rapist, went quiet. He was almost um, thumbing his nose to us, uh, that he could just appear and then disappear for months at a time and then suddenly come back again. There was nothing for four months. But in March 1978, police took a call from a young woman. She'd been driving home in the early hours. She was sexually assaulted as she walked from her car to her flat. Well, we're following up a number of leads, but I would draw your attention to the latest photo fit, which has been prepared. And there are a number of similarities in, in, in regard to his face. It was him again, the same man. Five attacks in under a year. Five women whose lives had changed forever. Another striking description of the man. I suspect that that is as vivid in their minds today as it was then. And I would put money on the fact that it, it will have affected their lives, the whole of their lives, somehow. Finding the Clifton Rapist was now the force's number one priority. There's a lot that women can do to help themselves, as well as taking the precautions that they've already outlined. They can get copies of this book free of charge from the Police Crime Prevention Department. It's called Violent Crime and You, and inside it contains a number of hints and tips as to what exactly to do if you happen to be attacked. I wouldn't go out after dark on my own. And it would be nice to know that there was somebody to take me back. Otherwise, I won't go. Students were outraged. The city was in fear. And the man behind the EFITs seemed to have just vanished. He was going to attack again. He probably would have continued attacking until he got caught. It was becoming quite an issue. Um, and there was quite a lot, obviously, pressure on the police force to, to catch him. Then, a breakthrough. John O'Connor, the detective constable on the right here, was making house-to-house -house inquiries. A man answered the door. He looked just like the photo fit. So DC O'Connor arrested the man and brought him in for questioning. I was met by a phalanx of senior officers. They said, why have you arrested him? And I said, something's not right. He's living in a false name on a, a flat that backs onto the scene of one of the attacks. He's got one previous conviction for indecent assault. It turned out he was wanted by the police in another area and he was actually hiding under the false name. So there was something wrong, but it wasn't what we thought it was. A false lead. Police had a little more to go on until, on December the 16th, 1978, a foreign student was attacked as she walked home on Parry's Lane in Westbury Park in the early hours. This victim was able to give police a new and potentially crucial piece of evidence. Her attacker was driving a distinctive car, a yellow Ford Capri. And her description of the attacker was similar to the other photo fits. She was, police believed, his sixth victim. But then they made another discovery, a seventh previously unknown survivor. A house-to-house -house team found her and someone said, oh, I think there's a girl downstairs that had a problem. She had an attack. And they then made inquiries and she said, yes, it was me, but I didn't report it. Despite the new leads, the man who'd struck seven times was still evading capture. Students, women and anti-rape campaigners were furious police hadn't caught their man. They took to the streets to show their anger. The march passed through the Bedsitter area of Bristol where there have been numerous sex attacks over the past few months, especially the Clifton area where up until recently there was intense police activity in the hunt for the so-called Clifton rapist. Like many women, I try not to uh, walk out at night. We're asking for the freedom to walk the streets after dark without the fear of attack or molestation. This is one of the ideas that the National Union of Students is suggesting for students to help ward off sex attackers. It looks innocuous enough, but if you push the top, this is what happened. Rape alarms and safety brochures were no substitute for an arrest. The attacker had evaded police for nearly 18 months. Forensics were poor. There was little evidence. It was time for a radical rethink. Next time, a desperate force gambles the safety of its youngest, newest female recruits in a high-stakes attempt to ensnare the Clifton Rapist. It was a classic honey trap. We all wanted to catch him, and I think we thought it was exciting. He had to physically touch you. That feeling that something might happen really intensified, and we really thought that he would strike the night that we were doing it. Over the three months, I was involved in 36 arrests. It was an extraordinary insight into being a female in our society.
there was a real sense of fear in the Clifton area of Bristol. There have been numerous sex attacks over the past few months. Up until recently, there was intense police activity. We're asking for the freedom to walk the streets after dark. We were desperate to try and apprehend the person that was causing all this. I would draw your attention to the latest photo fit. They were very nasty attacks. He probably would have continued attacking until he got caught. There was quite a lot of pressure on the police force to, to catch him. He could have murdered somebody. We tried overt policing, we tried in covert policing. There was the need to do something rather special. We were asked if you'd like to volunteer. They've got this operation going on and it'll be doing some decoy work. I was quite naive, no protection whatsoever. For all of them, they would have never have done anything like this before. It was groundbreaking, really was. You hoped you'd be the one, that you'd catch him. It's January 1979, and in Bristol, women are terrified. Candlelit vigils demonstrate the fear and anger women have towards the man who's been stalking the city's streets. Like many women, I try not to uh, walk out at night. I mean, I try and use a car where I can. And of course, you're not too worried until it happens to you, but I wouldn't go out after dark on my own unless I knew there was going to be someone to take me home. Over 18 months, seven women have been assaulted by a phantom-like figure who's struck at will. But who is the rapist behind the e-fits? His last two attacks happened in the space of a week, and the police force is desperate. We tried overt policing, we tried covert policing, and he was still being able to carry out the attacks. He was going to attack again. He probably would have continued attacking until he got caught. He could have murdered somebody. There was quite a lot, obviously, pressure on the police force to, to catch him. Police have tried everything, almost. One last high-risk option remains, a decoy operation. The force would ask its youngest, newest, least experienced female officers to walk these streets in an attempt to lure the Clifton rapist. The consequences, if it were to go wrong, were too terrible to bear. Those that were in a senior management position at the time had, had realised that there was the need for uh, us to do something rather special um, to, uh, to try and draw this person out. It was a classic honey trap. Nearly a dozen women would agree to take part in what would be codenamed Operation Argus. The operation was so secret that even some police departments would be unaware of its existence. Using female officers as decoys was nothing new in policing. But using so many young, inexperienced officers in one operation was a calculated gamble. It was a risk for the force, and it was a risk for the women. We were asked if you'd like to volunteer. They've got this operation going on, and it'll be working nights, doing some decoy work. We all wanted to catch him, and I think we thought it was exciting. I don't remember anybody saying, no, they wouldn't do it, because, you know, our job was to protect life and property as a policewoman. And we just thought, no, that's, that's our job to do that. We want to catch them. We want to be, you know, part of it. Policewomen were wanted to be seen as a target for this chap. If he was, you know, driving around looking for somebody, we wanted it to be us. I was quite naive, but I was, you know, hardening up gradually. All my friends were doing it, all the other policewomen were doing it. And I think in those days as well, there was this sense of equality. Um, and I didn't want to, people to think of me as a policewoman that, oh, she's too frightened to do something like that. You know, it's equal pay, but she she's, you know, feels too vulnerable to do that. I was young in service, nine months in service, and just enjoying everything that was coming along. And it was another thing to do, another, you know, oh, yes, I'll volunteer. Despite the enthusiasm of the decoy volunteers, senior officers were under no illusions. This would be a dangerous assignment. This guy had used violence against women, so we knew that they were putting themselves forward to the likelihood of being attacked. The attacker has threatened to kill his victims. Now, the force is using as the top brass it its most vulnerable officers to try to catch its most violent criminal. 
the WPCs will need some training. Even though I was only young at the time, I, I knew that it was something special that, that was happening. Chris Gould was a young police constable on probation. I did a lot of martial art in those days. I ended up being asked to do some self-defence training. The victims had given police detailed descriptions of the way they'd been attacked. It was effectively an attack from behind, like a rear-handed attack around the throat. We were shown how to get somebody's hands um, from off round our necks. Um, but, I mean, we weren't, you know, it wasn't like a six-month course in training. Detectives had analysed maps of where the attacks had happened. While none of the assaults had been on White Ladies Road, each of the victims had either walked or driven along it beforehand. The man had struck as they turned onto the darkened side streets. The attacker had clearly been staking out the route himself, perhaps from the yellow Ford Capri that was seen in his final assault. And these were the routes the young police officers would walk, bait for the rapist. The plan was to get out of the car, walk up the road, turn off into the dark area of Clifton to see what, see if anything happened, basically. To see if this attacker attacked it, you. If, if it would happen. But the only stipulation they did say, if you could call it off at any time you wanted to, if you felt unsafe, but if you did go through with it, he had to physically touch you to be arrested. I was dressed in jeans, a duffel coat and a scarf. I wanted to look like I was a student walking home from a, a late night, basically. I had a radio the size of a brick and a, and a piece coming out of it. But being rendered uh, Clifton as it was then, um, the radio mass wasn't very good and quite often the radio would cut out anyway. John Le Carrier stuff, isn't it? The, the classic spy honey trap, isn't it? The technique has probably been around for a long time in various different forms. But you've got to be very, very careful. You don't cross the line into entrapment. Very careful. Uh, that is, that's always been the case, because that would just be thrown out as, like, you've enticed this person to do this, and they weren't going to do it until you enticed them. The operation started on a January night in 1979. Steph Bearden, Michelle Leonard and Sally DeFazio were just three of the ten decoys. Every night, two women at a shift would walk this route, but they weren't alone. They were surrounded by a small army of observation officers. You suddenly think, they're my responsibility. I'm the one in charge of this unit that's now looking after these, and there's no way we're going to let them uh, uh, get hurt in any way, shape or form. They were placed in people's gardens and along the route you were always been watched. I would have been probably in an overt position and as soon as I heard they were coming anywhere near me then I would put myself into a covert position. I knew they were there. If they wanted to they could reach out and actually touch me as I walked past if they wanted to. So I knew they were there. Um, one, one did remark, he said, I could hear you breathing as you walk past. So that's how close they were. Well, you could hear where they were at any particular time. And of course, as that person passed your particular spot, you would say that the subject's gone past where I am. And somebody was had a little map probably and was working out where exactly they were at any particular time. I do remember once it had started thinking, you know, it, it was quite scary. In, things but other times it was completely routine and nothing happened and I guess you know we were lulled into a false sense of security. I remember on one of the walks um, the milk bottles rattling being knocked over and thinking oh you know is this it and then a little head jumping up or appearing saying sorry it's, it's us <laughs> as in it's the, the task force and they'd step back into the milk bottles and knock them over. Part of what you're doing is watching the female uh, operative for her safety but the second eye is effectively watching everything else like the vehicles that are driving past that may be slowing down that somebody may be wolf whistling at 
at the individual or looking out of a window or shouting at them or walking past them or turning around and looking back at them. If a man sort of walked towards them, you felt your heart beat go up a bit because you thought, is this going to be it? That feeling that something might happen really intensified. It was quite easy to sort of merge in with those people because, you know, they were your ages, you were dressed like them. Um, the only difference was is that, you know, we had the, the microphones on us and, and we were being watched, whereas they weren't. So really, in a way, we were safer than they were. There were always people about on White Ladies Road, but turned down the side roads and they were, lots of them were tree-lined, they were dark, yeah. Shadows. Shadows, basement flats with, you know, places you could hide. The use of, of the ground and the topography that you've got there and the, the, the gardens and the shadows and the cars and all that sort of, are all techniques that you've picked up and you know how to disappear very quickly. What kept most people awake, alert and active was the very fact that this was real and could, could happen and would happen on your shift. And I think, you know, you believed that it would so you remained alert and active. And we really thought that, you know, there was a chance that, you know, we would, we'd, um, you know, he would strike the night that we were, were doing it. You hoped you'd be the one, you know, that you'd catch him. It doesn't matter how you wrap this up and you think that there were all these police officers watching. The fact of the matter is, is uh, that under attack, they're on their own. So you've got to be pretty brave to put yourself in that position. Very vulnerable, very brave, and, you know, it, it must have been on the back of their minds all the time. Because, you know, whilst every possible, um, you know, precaution can be put in place, there is always risk. No stab vest, no protection whatsoever in our own clothes, radios that, you know, you couldn't hear, you couldn't, you could barely understand what was being garbled. I always thought that if he did come after me, I could I could run out of his reach. The operation had been running for weeks. The decoys and their observation teams had been out most nights, but the Clifton rapists seemed to have just vanished. It was starting to feel like a fruitless exercise. The commanders had one last trick up their sleeves. It was, in equal measure, both audacious and desperate. After a, a month or so, they decided to dress up a couple of policemen as women. Physically, they're going to be stronger, and if they did get somebody who was a bit, you know, tried, tried it on or whatever, they could handle themselves. So they were trying something different, I think. I was a slight build, um, small in terms of stature, so it was a sort of perfect fit. Suddenly there's Chris Gould and... Robbie Jones, and they said, can you bring some makeup in with you? We want you to make them up. So as the shift started, we would put their makeup on for them. It would take me at least two hours to get dressed, at least two hours with the, with the makeup. And I'm not exaggerating. It was It was a big thing to do. Over the three months, I was involved in 36 arrests. It was an extraordinary insight into being a female in our society. The constant fear of being on the street on your own. And there was fear on the streets. The torch-lit vigils continued, campaigners oblivious to the police's covert operation. But although Operation Argus had arrested many men for other offences, the Clifton rapists still evaded officers. Money and patience were running out. It must have cost a fortune. This obviously isn't going isn't to work, so those in charge obviously were thinking it's time to pull it. Police officers had been innovative, they'd been brave, they'd put their lives on the line, but they had failed in their prime objective. After months, the Clifton rapist was still elusive. He was still free to attack. Next time. So as he went past, I then recognize the identikit. That heightens your senses. Attention, he's on, this man is on life license for murder, got previous convictions for rape. The guy was walking behind her. 
He's quickening his step. He's getting closer. He's getting closer. The police obviously are sparing no efforts to try to catch the man or men responsible for at least eight sex attacks in Clifton since spring of last year. They were very nasty attacks. He was going to attack again. He probably would have continued attacking until he got caught. There was quite a lot, obviously, pressure on the police force to, to catch him. We were desperate to try and apprehend the person that was causing all this. I would draw your attention to the latest photo fed which has been prepared. He could have murdered somebody. We tried overt policing, we tried covert policing. There was the need for us to do something rather special. We were asked if you'd like to volunteer, they've got this operation going on. I always thought that if he did come after me, I could, I could run out of his reach. It must have cost a fortune. As the days went by, you started to feel, this blighter's not here, he's not taking the bait. Those in charge obviously were thinking it's time to pull it. For 10 weeks in 1979, Bristol Police had been coordinating Operation Argus running young female decoy operatives to try to catch the Clifton rapist who'd been terrorising the city. This is the photo fit picture of the actual attacker. But the attacker had gone to ground. He'd neither attacked the female officers nor any other women in Bristol. The operation was running as we wanted it to, but clearly as time went on and as the days went by, you started to feel... This blighter's not here. He's not taking the bait. We weren't getting the results. I, yeah, I, I think I did know that at the time, and we thought this obviously isn't going to isn't going to work. So those in charge obviously were thinking it's time to pull it. Operation Argus was expensive. Every night there were two decoys, at least ten observation officers, back up in vans and further support via radio link in the office. But the Clifton rapist hadn't appeared once. This couldn't go on. Well, it was huge manpower, and most of those hours were overtime. Um, it must have cost a fortune. To make matters worse, the 1970s state-of-the-art technical equipment was failing. The radios didn't work one night, so everybody came out of the bushes and thought, is your radio working? Is your radio working? Comms was always an issue then, you know. It was very basic stuff. But unfortunately, somebody had pulled the plug out by accident. So with everything seemingly going wrong, the decoys knew their time was nearly up. On March the 22nd, 1979, the curtain was to close on Operation Argus. This was to be the last chance, one final night. It's quite cold. I was just dropped off at the bottom of St Paul's Road at the traffic lights. The team would focus again on the dark streets around White Ladies Road in the Clifton and Redland areas of Bristol, where the attacks had all taken place. On this last run, I, it's still very clear in my mind. Michelle got out of the car, walked away from the car, and as she walked away from the car, I still see it now, Fort Capri came round the corner from White Ladies Road into St Paul's Road, and the driver immediately slowed, and I saw him look towards Michelle. So I'm walking up White Ladies Road on my own, and how I didn't I didn't see him at all. As he went past, I could see that this guy fitted the identikit. He looked just like the attacker. Looked like the man you just were after. Like the, he he did a U-turn behind our car, and then pulled in, literally a few yards in front of us. So I could then get his number plate. Michelle then turned left. He drove to the traffic lights and turn left. I thought, this, this is him, we've got him. We've got a number plate, I'd radioed that in. And that's when I was told somebody's paying attention to me, you know, it was like, oh, th there's a car interested in Michelle. I could see her way up ahead, and I then whipped round the back. I was so concerned in my own mind, we had to get this guy. I could hear the handover, and by now the CID officers 
could also see the car. And they were watching him and they were saying, he's slowing down, he's slowing down. And I heard them say, he's pulled up, he's got out the car, he's following Michelle on foot. So I carried on walking and then I, I could have said there and then, no, I don't want to do this anymore. We had a radio message back to say that the vehicle was registered to a man called Evans who was out uh, on life license for murder and rape. Once they had said, attention, this man is on life license for murder, got previous convictions for rape, then I was, I was frightened. You know, I was... <sighs> that puts your, uh, your sense, it heightens your senses, and uh, without a doubt, everybody was uh, on tender hooks. He's now out of the car and running after her. I thought, oh, oh, right, OK, keep walking, keep walking. Your blood pressure goes up a little bit then because you suddenly think, is this him? Have we now, is he going to attack? We need the evidence to arrest him. He might look like the identicate, but we don't know yet. The guy was walking behind her. He's quickening his step. He's getting closer. He's getting closer. So as the, 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 the sort of tension was building and building and building. I could hear him. And whilst I, I could hear his footsteps, I, I thought, that's all right. He's behind me, behind me. And I carried on walking, and then I couldn't hear him anymore. To actually be walking, knowing that you've got a killer on on your um, on your track behind you. I mean, it doesn't get any more real and any more scary than that. And I thought, all I had in my mind is I've got to get under a street lamp, get under a street light, so they can you can be seen. Incredibly brave person to know that you probably had somebody who was likely to um, uh, cause an attack. I stopped under the street light, turned round, and there he was behind me, and I thought, that's him, that's a photo fit, that is identical to him. And I thought, what's going to happen now? Things happen so quickly, but actually, when you reflect, they are rather slow. He then was staring straight past me, and I thought, oh, he's not interested. You know, he's going to walk straight on. He then grabbed me from behind, round the throat, round the arm, the waist, and said, don't scream, I'll kill you, and started to pull me backwards. I saw him bundle her into the, uh, into the alleyway, and then she was lost to sight. That image will stay with me. His face will stay with me forever. I can turn and look over my shoulder and see it, even after 40-odd years. And then I heard my officers say, he's on her, he's attacked her. And he hit me as he hit me to, to run away, sort of push me out of the way, hit me in the face. And I, I said, don't, don't let him get away, don't let him get away. There was that moment where there wasn't anybody else there except me. And, of course, Michelle was still in the garden there, probably coping, trying to cope with what had just happened. And literally he ran right at me. And I did one of those sort of grabbed rugby tackles on him. And we landed in the middle of the road. And then the next message was, we've got him, he's on the floor. And Kelvin drove his car down and he skidded to a halt and he must have stopped about an inch from my head. I literally was under the wheels of the car and I thought I, thought I was going to get run over. There was a feeling of elation, but then a feeling of, let's deal with this properly. We've got to, if we've got the right man... We've got to make sure we've got all the evidence right, uh, that everybody can recount now exactly what they've done over the last half an hour to ensure that the evidence is going to be right. It was just the elation that we'd actually got somebody attacking, uh, you know, tragically attacking uh, Michelle, and that Michelle was safe and well because, you know, she was she must have been traumatised by that incident. There was no... How do you feel about this afterwards? No. Or I think you should have some counselling. There's nothing. There was no such thing as that. I think we all wondered, you know, wanted to know the story, wanted to know the, all the details about it and how, who it was and which one of us it was and and um, how they got him and who he was. We had a copy of the identikit with us. They had him face down on the floor and when they turned him over. I thought, we've got you. In these early stages, they had just his name and criminal record, Ronald Evans, convicted murderer. 
But who actually was this man who'd attacked seven women in nearly two years, who'd struck fear into Bristol and who'd prompted this groundbreaking covert operation? Evans was a 38-year-old electrician who lived on the outskirts of Bristol. He was married. He was a family man. In 1963, Evans had raped and murdered a 21-year-old, Kathleen Heathcote, in Nottinghamshire. Evans had been sentenced to life in prison, but in 1975, he'd been released on life licence. You would be working in um, somewhere down at Avonmouth with a bunch of blokes. He had a wife, and occasionally he would want to go out and attack a woman. Few of Evans' friends here knew about his past, that he'd killed a woman years before he'd been sentenced to life in prison, that he'd served 11 years and he'd been moved to an open prison near Bristol and he'd made the city his home when he'd been released. He was released on so-called life licence. Now, that meant he had to live by certain conditions. Instead, he used his newfound freedom to attack women to become the Clifton Rapist. People are allowed, allowed out on, on parole, uh, and the assumption is that the parole board have made the right decision to allow them out. Uh, clearly on this, this occasion, this particular individual um, was intent on carrying out uh, to commit similar crimes. When you found out he was a murderer, and when you found out what he had done to a woman back in 1963... It was a shock. It was shocking. Yeah, it was a total shock. And how... He could have moved without it, without us knowing about him. That was the biggest letdown, I suppose, the biggest shock. And that is a failing, I think, of, of the system. And it was a failure for all those women who, who got attacked because it could have been avoided. You can't make this up. It's scary to think that we were that close to a killer and potentially the risks were extraordinarily high. And, um, you know, Michelle was an extraordinarily brave person, as were the other policewomen that put themselves out there. It was, it's just extraordinarily brave. When he actually, he was caught, we were all just so relieved and just so, so glad that we'd done it and it had all been worthwhile. In 1979, here at Bristol Crown Court, Ronald Evans pleaded guilty to five counts of sexual assault. The two more serious attacks on Grove Road and Parry's Lane were dropped. Evans was sentenced to nine years in prison and his life licence was revoked. And it was only now, with a judge's commendation, that journalists heard about the top-secret Operation Argus. Each of the decoys received a chief constable's commendation and Michelle received a Queen's commendation for bravery. So now you've got the Queen's commendation. How do you feel about that? I'm very surprised, because I didn't know anything about it until yesterday. It was all in the papers and my picture was taken and it was a lot of press and... I was interviewed and um, I lasted a few days and then uh, back to work. And when I walked up at Southmead, oh, that's that, that's that policewoman. And it was quite nice, actually. Looking back on it, yeah, I'm really, really proud of what we did, but I wouldn't do it again. Ronald Evans returned to prison, but there was unfinished business. Two of his victims hadn't seen justice. Next time, a cold case team links Ronald Evans to the two unsolved attacks from the 1970s. It was decided that we needed to review any stranger rape offence to see whether or not forensic science could be used to identify offenders. Ronald Evans, back in the 70s, when he went to court, thought that he'd got away with those offences he wasn't charged and convicted of. With the advent of DNA, his past caught up with him. There was a real sense of fear in the Clifton area of Bristol. We're asking for the freedom to walk the streets after dark. There have been numerous sex attacks over the past few months. I try not to uh, walk out at night. They were very nasty attacks. There was the need for us to do something rather special. We were asked if you'd like to volunteer doing some decoy work. It's scary to think that we were that close to a killer. But the police eventually got their man and Ronald Evans was jailed in 1979. Ronald Evans, back in the 70s when he went to court, thought that he'd got away with 
those offences he wasn't charged and convicted of. For two of his victims, a quarter of a century had passed and they hadn't seen justice. I can still see his face. They must be feeling the same way, reliving that terror. We needed to review any stranger rape offence to see whether or not forensic science could be used to identify offenders. With the advent of DNA, his past caught up with him. For 25 years, Ronald Evans, the Clifton rapist, has been growing old in prison. But now it's 2004, and the 63-year-old is weeks away from release. Freedom is within his grasp. In the late 1970s, seven women were attacked during Ronald Evans's reign of terror. But when he was caught, he admitted only five. What about those other attacks? Was another rapist at large, or was Ronald Evans responsible for these two? My name is Gary Mason. I was asked to set up the Avon Somerset Cold Case Team. It was decided that we needed to review any stranger rape offence to see whether or not forensic science could be used to identify offenders. So the first thing I had to do was identify, well, how many offences are we talking about? Surprisingly, we were talking a couple thousand offences. Near the top of the pile of unsolved cases was the Grove Road rape from November 1977. The victim was a 21-year-old foreign au pair. The file left by detectives at the time included a laboratory report, and scientists now told Gary Mason that the victim's clothes had been kept in storage, preserved perfectly for 25 years. It was about five, six weeks later, they said, remember that case, um, Grove Road, you asked us to look at? We've got full DNA profile from it. So, of course, I'm getting very excited and they say but not only that we've loaded it on the DNA database and it's come back with a match we know whose DNA it is so I said well I got my pen in my hand and they gave me the name of Ronald Evans and what name what did that name mean to you then meant absolutely nothing to me and I think probably because I didn't respond when they gave me the name they said you do realize who that is well I said no, thinking it's not someone famous or something, is it? And they said, that's the Clifton Rapist. There have been numerous sex attacks over the past few months. There was a real sense of fear in the Clifton area of Bristol. We're asking for the freedom to walk the streets after dark. This is the photo fit picture of the actual attacker. The police investigation in the 1970s had caught and convicted Evans for five attacks, but he denied the Grove Road rape and detectives had never really been convinced he was the offender. Now, modern science said it had to have been him. My name is Rob Calloway. In 2004, I was a detective constable on the Haven the Somerset major crime team. I think that Ronald Evans, back in the 70s, when he went to court, thought that he'd got away with those offences he wasn't charged and convicted of. And really, his past caught up with him with the advent of DNA. But there was a second unsolved case. From Parry's Lane in December 1978, a student who'd moved from Europe was attacked as she walked home. This had been classed as an attempted rape. Gary Mason found this paperwork in files about Ronald Evans's solved crimes. It had sat, forgotten, in a storeroom in the attic of this police station. But the files had more. I found a brown A4 envelope. And in it was a plastic bag, and in that plastic bag was about ten plastic tubes which each contained swabs for sexual offences. They were sealed, and I looked at the name on the outside, and it was my victim that I just had a DNA hit from. DNA hits and links in the paperwork, evidence left by Ronald Evans more than two decades earlier, could now be used against him. But where was he and had he changed? We didn't know for sure he was still in prison at that point. The first thing that shocked me was they said, oh, he's about to be released into an open prison because we're in the process of him being released out into, into the public again. Actually, he was coming up for a review of whether he should be out on parole. We had a bit of a clock ticking situation. So I said, well, what do I have to do to stop him going to an open prison? 
I need to speak to him about a couple of sexual assaults. What did you think when you heard that he was just about to be released, but hang on, here's a chance that actually he might well be staying staying back in? Great. I thought it was good. He, it, you know, at last, justice, justice will be done. The cold case team drove to the prison in Devon. There, they arrested an unsuspecting Ronald Evans who was preparing for release. When I met him, he was thin, balding, wearing glasses. He didn't look much of a threat. And, and he was very personal when we met him as well. Um, when I in introduced myself and told him what I was there for, he was very, very shocked. And initially he thought that it was a deliberate ploy on our part because he knew he was coming up for a review of parole. But it wasn't a ploy by the police. The cold case team had firm evidence linking Evans to the two unsolved attacks. He was going back to court. When police charged Evans for these historic attacks, there was a renewed interest from the press. Ronald Evans, a 63-year-old former electrician, was told he faced a count of rape, attempted rape, and four counts of indecent assault, which are alleged to have taken place in Bristol. Bespectacled and wearing a padded jacket... And I was in court as Evans made his first appearance. This case was heard before Bristol magistrates in court number one, and it lasted just two minutes. Ronald Evans spoke only to confirm his name and address, and the case was adjourned for a hearing before Bristol Crown Court next Tuesday. He was returned to prison after the third day, after we charged him, and uh, then it was a case of preparing the files. Both ladies agreed to come to Bristol, um, and both provided me with some very, very detailed victim impact statements. It was an overseas student who was working over here and um, they had to get her back. She came back to England 25 years later, was it? Generally, an impact statement, you may have had a few months or even a year for the victim to come to terms with what happened and put in on paper how it had affected them. But with both these ladies, we're talking about over 20 years' experience. Um, so... It was almost like a, a life study on how it had affected them. Michelle Leonard had been part of the police team that caught Evans. She'd been prepared as much as possible for his attack. But when he struck, it was still traumatising. What must it have been like for those unsuspecting victims? When I recall what I was doing, he grabbed me from behind, ran the throat, ran the arm, the waist, and said, don't scream, I'll kill you started to pull me backwards and I can still see his face now as I did then they must be feeling the same way reliving that terror how they can possibly completely forget about it I don't know the trial was set for December 2004 Evans was now admitting the Grove Road attack but was denying the Parry's Lane one it's the first time I've seen him in 25 years that poor woman had to come to England to give evidence of 25 years ago of a horrific incident, what had happened to her. One of the ladies told us that she wouldn't wear high heels ever since that incident, just so if she had a necessity to run, she could do so. She never, from that day onwards, travelled abroad. She didn't like travelling on her own. She didn't travel very far from her hometown. Whenever she used to go out for a walk, she would always walk towards the middle of the road so no one could jump out of bushes. They were unable to have uh, such close relationships as they would like to, um, so the issues of trust. To be fair to her, she did travel to come to England. I thought that was so brave of her. On the morning of his trial, Ronald Evans stood in the dock here at Bristol Crown Court and was asked how he would plead. And he replied with one word twice, guilty. In the moments after, those harrowing victim impact statements were read to the court. Sitting in the public gallery, watching on, listening in, was one of his other victims. Now, she'd seen justice 25 years earlier, but she hadn't seen her attacker since then. And the impact of what he did to her back in 1978 was clear to those sitting next to her. I held her hand because she was shaking so much and she said, I said, are you sure you're right? Do you want to go? She said, no, I want to stay, she said. But her words were, 
I thought I was over this man, but I'm obviously not. And I thought, yeah, the impact that what he did to her 25 years ago is still with her. And she still hasn't got over what happened to her. And it's it's a life sentence for the victim as well as... And he should have a life sentence, I think, really. In 1979, Evans was convicted of five assaults near White Ladies Road in Clifton in Bristol. Now, in 2005, he was convicted of rape who was going back to prison. I had no doubt at the time we dealt with him that he was still a danger to women. When he got sentenced to another 10 years, I was quite happy. And his life licence was revoked again, so I knew he was going back to prison for a long time. He thought that in his 60s he could still be a risk to females, I thought that maybe going back to prison for a significant amount of time was the right thing uh, to keep him out of harm's way. But this story doesn't end there, because on a cold day in January 2019, an old man on a walking stick shuffled out of jail. Ronald Evans had spent a total of 57 of his 79 years behind bars. He was Britain's longest-serving prisoner. And despite convictions for murder, rape and sexual assault, a parole board deemed him fit for release. An injunction prevents him from returning to Bristol, the city he terrorised back in the 1970s. I suppose I'm horrified, really. Last time I knew him, in 2003-04, he was still a danger to the public as far as I was concerned. Well, I hope now that he is no longer a risk um, to members of the public, and I hope that... He understands why he's here so long. I think they'll always have that something in them that makes them um, be able to do that sort of thing. I, I don't think that ever goes. He's 81. Uh, he's not, as far as we're aware, committed another offence. He's, uh, he's served his punishment, but I feel sorry for the women that were attacked, who quite clearly are probably still uh, affected in some way or other by his attacks. I don't know how somebody has... Um managed to convince everybody that he is now safe, but he would have gone through a parole uh, board hearing and um, they've obviously decided that he, he is, uh, in their wisdom, uh, safe to be within the community. While the cold case team had finally secured convictions for Evans's old attacks, it was Operation Argus, with its covert policing, unreliable radios and brave decoy officers that originally brought Evans to book. It was completely unique, a bizarre thing to do. Very forward-thinking, really, of its time. And I just think, yeah, it was a good job well done. The operation helped other people realise around the country that, you know, this, this can be done and it does actually work. We were very lucky, all of us, not to become a, a victim. I always think if I'd have been 100 metres away in a car with the two policewomen and he'd never seen them, what would he have done that night? Was there a chance another woman could have been attacked? If he had to have been caught, I think he would have murdered again. I think he would have probably got more somebody would have resisted eventually i've been in many many scrapes but that one moment in my life has uh, has set set me off on on, on the career that i took done surveillance for drugs and other things but nothing has ever compared to that it was brilliant the operation to catch the clifton rapist changed the secret face of covert policing in the late 1970s but what you might ask has changed over the last 40 years about women's safety Police today have tools and techniques that detectives back then could only have dreamt of. But has anything really got any better? There's women being attacked still. We've got better education. We're supposed to be more civilised, aren't we? So why is it still, why do men have this need to attack women or abuse women? That's a bigger picture, really.
For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.